It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania. I have John Aldrich on the line. He's a producer, an editor, and a fellow adventurer. And I'm really excited to talk to you, John, because I've heard some stories about what it took to film this last film that you were involved with called The River and the Wall. How are you doing? (laughs) Have you survived? (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing great, Serena. Yeah, production wrapped a little while ago, so I've had a chance to recover. (laughs) But great, great to talk with you. Yeah, you too. Tell everybody a little bit about what The River and the Wall was when you first started. And then we'll get on to what it was for you by the time you were done. But when you first started the project, how were you feeling about it? And what kind of prep did you do? Let's go under the hood a little bit, too, with it. You bet. So The River and the Wall, uh, for those who don't know, is a, uh, a feature documentary that follows five friends as they go down the Rio Grande from El Paso to the Gulf of Mexico under their own power, first on bicycles and then on horseback through the Big Bend and then on canoes through lower canyons and other sections of the Rio, because the Rio in some sections doesn't have water and you actually have to be on foot or on horseback. And so they end up going all the way down the, uh, all the, way down the Rio Grande to Boca Chica, which is the mouth of the Rio there at the Gulf of Mexico. And along the way, they encounter folks who tell them about what a potential border wall would do to the environment, how it would impact immigration, how it would impact things like private property. What, what a lot of people don't realize is that Texas is about 95% all private land. In the West, you tend to have a lot of, of public land, but in Texas, we don't have that much. And a lot of that land alongside the border is private. So folks who have land along the border there could have their ranches bisected by a border wall could have their farms bisected by a border wall and cutting them off from really the only source of water in some places that are very desert-like. So uh, that's that's what the river and the wall is about. And I was lucky enough to uh, kind of be there from the beginning with director Ben Masters. Mm -hmm. Uh, He and I had been working together for, I guess, probably about three years prior on, uh, on a series of short films about a variety of subjects, but almost all of them wildlife or conservation related. And so, uh, we, we were working at the time on a, a film about mountain lions in the mountains of West Texas. And most people may not know, but there are mountain lions in the mountains of West Texas. Oh, there are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there are. And so uh, in, in California, they're a lot more common. But in West Texas, there's probably only between 80 and 150 or so. And we were talking with these wildlife biologists at the Borderlands Research Institute that we work with, you know, on occasion. And and we were kind of positing the question, well, what, what would happen if a border wall is, uh, is built? The folks at BRI told us, well, that would pretty much be the end of our mountain lion population because they all come up from Mexico. And that would be kind of a shame. And we kind of thought about it and just realized that a border wall could be really disruptive to a lot of things, for, first and foremost, among them, the environment. Ben, Ben in particular, cares much more about animals than he does for people. (laughs) And so he was far more concerned about the impacts on the environment and on on people. And so that sort of started the conversation from there. We were lucky enough to to get invited to work on a project or actually work on a contest that was sponsored by National Geographic and Red. Um, An old colleague of mine from National Geographic had emailed me about this contest and said, hey, are you guys interested? Or are, actually, he said, am I interested? But part of the, the rules of the contest were that you could not have been shooting on red prior. 
well, I own a red and I shoot on red all the time, but Ben had not shot on a red and, 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 and did not own one. So he applied for the contest, was accepted, and then spent three months out in West Texas filming all manner of wildlife, uh, bighorn sheep, bears, all kinds of stuff, all to kind of examine what the impact of border wall would be on the environment out there. And so we turned that into a, a short film called Wildlife on the Wall. And from there, we raised money on that short that got picked up by Geographic, and it placed second in the contest, which was great. And we, uh, we kind of put together a team of folks. Ben went out and met all of these folks who were on the journey, uh, who, who some of them had not met before until the morning that we showed up there in, in a parking lot in El Paso That's awesome. to get on bikes and ride. <laughs> <laughs> How many total well, and, miles and did you go? How far did you go? How long? Uh, 1,200 miles. 1,200 miles. Have you ever met J.J. Kelly in your travels around National no, Geographic? But the, no, but the, the, name, the name's familiar, though. J.J. and I were working at National Geographic at the same time, and he started out originally with a film that he had done with a partner where they built their own kayak and they went thousands of miles oh, on great. the ocean along the the coast. And I'm, you know, you remind me a little bit of him. He, he's had an amazing career. I mean, I just love people who do the kind of work you do because you edit, but you're also out in the field. Right. So you met everybody in El Paso. Right. They had their bikes. They were getting ready to, to go on this journey. Who was involved? Can you talk about who went on the trip? We had five folks who went on the trip. It was Heather Mackey, who uh, is a... Uh, is an ecologist specializing in ornithology. And she was at the time a graduate student at, uh, I hope I don't get this wrong, Caltech Pasadena. She's since gotten her master's degree and is doing biology field work in uh, the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, I believe, right now. And then we had Jay Kleber. Jay is a conservationist uh, from, a, from an old family here in Texas. And uh, he works for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation which is a nonprofit that raises money for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department and to help sort of supplement their budget. So Jay's whole life is dedicated towards conservation. And, uh, and he was sort of the, the suburban dad avatar in that he's got three young kids and is, uh, is married and, and approaching 40, if not there already. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we had uh, our, our, two, uh, our two immigrant members of the, uh, of the team, actually, I shouldn't call Austin an immigrant. He was born here in the States, but his, his parents are from Guatemala. Uh, Austin Alvarez, a, a, a river guide from, uh, from here in Austin, uh, but residing out in Terlingua and working as a river guide on the Rio Grande. So Austin was our, was our, our river guy who had spent years and years on the Rio Grande uh, and, and was beyond excited to show everyone and to go down certain portions of the Rio where he'd never been before. And then our fifth member of the group was the absolute wild card, a National Geographic explorer by the name of Philippe D'Andrade. And Philippe is originally from Brazil. His family immigrated to Cleveland, of all places. When he was six, I believe, six or seven, he actually went to my alma mater, the University of Florida, as an undergrad and studied filmmaking there. And so he and I had a lot to talk about with regards to rooting for the Florida Gators and all that sort of thing. <laughs> but Phil, uh, Phil has a show on National Geographic uh, and is now residing down in Costa Rica. And boy, all of these folks are great followers on Instagram, by the way, but Phil in particular is just a fantastic follow on Instagram because he's got all of these wonderful shots of sharks and hummingbirds and cats. And he is just a absolutely fantastic ambassador for the wildlife. Don't you love it? What's his handle? What's his handle on Instagram? Uh, let's see. So I think he's, uh, he, I think he's at Felipe Dandrade. 
uh, just uh, just like uh, just like it is uh, spelled F I L uh, I P E D E A N D R A D E, I think. Anyway, <laughs> by the way, course, what is your handle on Instagram? What is your handle on Instagram? Oh, my, so my handle on Instagram is just at J underscore Aldrich, uh, A L D R I C H. Okay. And I would certainly be remiss if I didn't mention uh, uh, the, the ringleader in this whole crazy mess, uh, Ben Masters, mm-hmm. who had done a previous feature film called Unbranded that was almost, uh, I mean, it was kind of a, a template for this. And what he did with Unbranded. Yeah, I saw that one. It was pretty awesome. Did you work on that one with him? I did not. I met Ben mm-hmm. after he had completed that. Um, mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. of the production on that and, and all of the posts took place in Montana mm-hmm. uh, with uh, one of the one of the, the director on it was a guy who also worked as camera on uh, on River in the Wall. And um, so most of that took place in Montana. Uh, but Ben is a dreamer and a crazy person who has fantastic <laughs> ideas, and he's a great writer and photographer to boot. Don't you think the best creative people are a little bit nuts? <laughs> I mean, aren't we all a little bit crazy to do what we do? I mean, I, I think you yeah. have to be. Yeah. I think you have to be have to have a, a wire astray in there somewhere to make it all work. <laughs> so you you call yourself a producer editor, but you also shot on this film. You carried those red cameras around. Tell us what sections of the film you shot. So I was lucky enough to get to go through one of the more scenic sections where um, we started out in El Paso and ended up in Boquillas, which is in Big Bend. So I was there for the first, I guess, probably 400 miles of the journey or so. And uh, that included uh, periods where they were on bicycle and then periods where they were on horseback. So I was unbelievably lucky to go onto that section because it, 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 if folks don't know, that part of Texas is stunning. Mm. And it, it, it's really, it's, it's so big that it can be really difficult to do justice to photographically because everything's really spread out. It's very special to Texas. So what time of year was this? So the only time that we could get everybody free and have enough time to do this was December and January. So we started December 1st in El Paso, and we finished February 10th in Boca Chica. Oh, my God. A little cold? And we broke for 10 days. <laughs> a little cold? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Tell, oh, what, my goodness. How did you do that? I mean, seriously, how did, how did you – how cold was it? Well, we were camping most of the most of the time. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it. Uh, you may not think of Texas as cold, but certainly West Texas gets plenty cold. It's the desert, after all. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we had, we had temps in the 20s and teens at night. Uh, on some days, and uh, highs in the highs in the thirties some days. Wow. Uh, but to be honest, most of the time during the day it was fine. It wasn't too cold. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't know. I, would you rather be cold than hot? Because if you'd done it in July, we would have. Oh my gosh! It, nobody would have made it. It was a hundred. <laughs> it was a hundred and twenty degrees in the shade on Stargate, on the film. Yeah, and there was no yeah, shade. Yeah, yeah, it could be it could be awful, but in the cold, you know, when it's that cold, you have to worry about your batteries. Although it was warming up during the day, right? Exactly. Can you tell us what equipment you took with you at that point? You're camping out. You're on horseback, or you're on foot, or you're on bicycles. Yep. Did you have four wheel vehicles that were traversing? I mean, that were moving in parallel with you, so that you would have some assistance if you needed it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I was in one of the support vehicles, my my Toyota Sequoia four x four. And then we had uh, a Ford F-150 four x four. That was Ben's truck. And sometimes we would swap that out for Jay's truck, which was a Toyota Tundra four x four. And they were absolutely fan- fantastic. Mm-hmm. But 
they did actually let us down in one section called the Forgotten Reach. Through no fault of their own, really. Uh-oh. We got hit by what I would characterize as a freak snowstorm. Uh-oh. Because you don't get a whole lot of snow out in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. And we were in a, we were in this section called the Forgotten Reach that there really aren't, there are no paved roads. In some sections, there are no roads. They had to bushwhack for about 10 miles at one point Jeez. just to get from point A to point B uh, from one campground to another. And uh, so after it, after it snowed there, all that snow melted. And we were on dirt roads and all of that dirt turned into slush and mud. Ew. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Ew. And the trucks, the trucks essentially, the, the trucks would go about 100 yards and they'd get stuck in the mud. We'd have to dig them out and, you know, rinse and repeat until we finally went, okay, we, we can't do this anymore. And so we stopped for the night and said, okay, it, the road will freeze overnight. We'll get up really early. We figured we had about 20 miles to go at that point on those dirt roads. We'll get up real, real early, and we'll get going before the before the road thaws out, and we'll make it to pavement and be on our way. Best laid pa- plans. Uh, we we woke up and got going, and within an hour, the the road had thawed, and we were right back to where we were. And so the the cast and our uh, and one of our cameramen, Dave Adams, basically left myself and our assistant cameraman, Alex Wanker. And said via Candias, amigos. We'll see you later. Oh, that's nice. Okay, so they left you with what? <laughs> with with your truck with, or what? With two Where trucks, you? Uh, all of the bikes, <laughs> all of the camping equipment, all of the camera gear, and pretty empty gas tanks. We <laughs> we were pretty low on gas at that point because on the Forgotten Reach, your nearest gas station is probably Fort Stockton, which is probably from when you leave Fort Stockton and get down on Chester Road to the Forgotten Reach, you're probably talking 200 miles, something like that. I mean, I could be wrong, but I know that uh, both of our trucks were pretty close to empty. We probably had about an eighth of a tank. So Alex and I just pretty much hung out there, um, not running the cars and, uh, Trying to keep warm uh, until the road froze again, so we, you know, stayed in stayed in the trucks and and huddled together for warmth. <laughs> oh, that you know, that's one of the scariest things to me. There's two things that scare me when you're in remote locations like that. If you have a vehicle, yeah. is running out of gas, and the other oh, thing sure. is is communication. Did you have satellite phones? Because I'm sure there are not cell towers very close to you for most of this trip. No how cell did, towers anywhere yep. nearby. So how so did you how you work it? So we had a uh, a text device called an inReach, and so we were able to text uh, to each other, and, uh, and that was helpful because uh, when we when we did finally decide that the road road was frozen enough, we'd gotten texts from Ben about the route that we were about to go on mm-hmm. uh, that were very helpful of, you know, oh, the, 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 there's a gate across this, ignore it and just keep on, you know, open up the gate and go on through. It says it's private property. It's not just keep on going. Um, you'll know you're towards the end when you hit a monster hill. And, uh, you know, that, <laughs> that drive at, at one o'clock in the morning in, in two, di- two different vehicles, <laughs> Alex and I following each other, that was, that was pretty... Uh, that was pretty. That was pretty uh, scary because, you know, we're on a single track road, and we were kind of we were kind of sliding around a little bit. And you're going up and down these really big hills. That if you just slide the wrong way, you're off into a ravine, and that's pretty much it. So, yeah, we finally got 
to pavement around probably three o'clock in the morning. And then from there, it was about a, about an hour's drive to Presidio where everybody was, uh, was taking a break at a motel. And, uh, yeah, we finally got in around probably around four. And, uh, unfortunately Dave Adams, our cameraman had to, uh, be on a flight out of El Paso that morning. And so poor Alex basically got about an hour of sleep and then turned around and drove Dave to the El Paso airport while the rest of us, you know, recovered and did laundry and and that sort of stuff. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how uh, when you're traveling on a normal tourist trip, you look at these motels, we call them the cheap motels, and you think, I'd never stay there. Wow. (laughs) There's running water. Running water? A real (laughs) toilet? Yeah. You're kidding. (laughs) I mean, uh, a mattress? What? (laughs) I know. So, I mean... Oh my gosh! You know, it, it's those little things that you take for granted in in, in your normal normal Western life. And food uh, too. That, I mean, yeah, food. You get, Did you develop a real love of beef jerky? I know that's a silly question, but like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, so funny you should ask. The good folks <laughs> at Epic Provisions Company. Uh, yeah. We'll plug here for them. Uh, Epic yeah, Epic Bars. Uh, they are they are based at, here out of Austin. And they gave us uh, a, a several, several boxes of Epic Bars. You know, we got kind of burnt out on them, but they, they are terrific. And my kids to this day, when we're in the grocery store, Dad, Epic Bars. Aww. And so, uh, yeah, we, we ate our fair share of beef jerky. So Epic Bars are made of, uh, they tend to be made of wild game. So there are venison bars and wild boar, wild boar bars and all that sort of thing. So by the end of it, we were definitely kind of like, okay, no more, no more Epic Bars. Mm-hmm. But they are fantastic mm-hmm. and we love them to death. <laughs> and you know you got to have something you got to be able to eat if you can't there's no grocery stores anywhere around oh my gosh okay no, so no let's take thing. a step back no there aren't there aren't and um so when i know i know our cruise when we get to the gas station we're doing i didn't do a 1200 mile trek down the river the way you did but i have done some crazy things on remote areas and you finally get to that gas station mm-hmm. and what's your choice you've got cheetos or potato chips or whoo Beef jerky. There's beef jerky. So <laughs> Right. Beef jerky. The best. Well, and when you're talking about this this particular section of West Texas, the the gas stations actually have little mini grocery stores in them because they are literally the oasis in, in that food desert. Right. Um, and I always made it a point because sometimes I would, you know, have to veer off in one direction or another and break away from the crew as they were traveling. I always made it a point. If, like it, Sometimes I would go and do the grocery shopping. And I always made it a point to come back with goodies for everybody. And the the, the, the <laughs> cast always loved to see me show up because they knew that I would have, I, I picked up their favorite like Sour Patch Kids or Swedish Fish or some, you know, high fructose <sighs> corn syrup candy that would keep them going. Oh, there you go. That is adventurer food, dream food. Okay, so let's <laughs> let's take a step back, and I want you to think for a minute because picture picture what was in the truck in terms of equipment, like cameras, lights, batteries, sure. hard drives. What what did you travel with to do this film? The, the production vehicle was my truck, which was a, a Toyota Sequoia four by four, and a Sequoia uh, is roughly the size of a suburban, and uh, it it was stuffed to the absolute gills with gear. So we had my red Epic uh, Dragon. We had uh, a helium weapon that was donated by uh, by Red to us for the duration of the production. Thank you so much to them. We had a Panasonic EVA-1. 
And we had, uh, let's see, three different sets of sticks, a couple of Sacklers and my O'Connor sticks. We had a small light kit that we didn't use a whole lot. It was, uh, it, it's a little uh, V-mount uh, light panel kit that we could bust out when we needed a little punch during an interview or something like that, but it didn't come out of the box too much. And then we also had uh, at various times drones. Mm -hmm. So we had uh, an inspired two with a lens package and that was, uh, that, that provided some of the, the greatest imagery in the film. You know, after that, it's all just sort of various and sundry, not a whole lot of camping equipment in my truck, just my own personal camping gear, which was not a lot. You know, a couple of computers, uh, as many hard drives as we could get away with, mm -hmm. um, a buttload of uh, AA lithium batteries to uh, to power up the wireless mics and the mixer that all of the wireless mics were feeding into. So we, we had slapped wireless lobs on everybody and had to change out batteries because they were on, you know, pretty much 14 or 15 hours a day. And uh, so we went through a lot of lithium batteries, which is not the greatest for the environment, but that's sort of what you go through for production. Yeah. Sometimes you don't have any choice. You really what, do you remember what kind of mic system you were using? Oh, absolutely. I still have two of them. So uh, we got these wonderful electrosonic wireless that uh, were, were weather sealed. And we put those things through the ringer. I, I actually happened to see their, their VP of marketing at NAB this year mm -hmm. and told him who I was and showed him a couple of pictures of uh, like Jay Clayberg in particular taking a dunk in the Rio down a rapid and said, we, st we, we still use that mic to this day. And they were, they were pretty, pretty pleased. I still need to get back in touch with them and see if they want, want to endorse us. <laughs> oh, they should. I mean, it's, it's hard to find sound equipment that'll work in adverse weather conditions. Now, what, what lenses were you using on the, on the reds? So uh, we use a variety of those. I have a little contact Zeiss package that I just love. Mm -hmm. So I retrofitted a bunch of those and, and had them modded at Duclos. Uh, we also had a Sigma Art lens package that we were using uh, on basically on the weapon. So I used my contacts on my Dragon. And then uh, we would use a lot of those Sigma lenses on the weapon. And then on the EVA-1, that was sort of the run-and-gun Verite camera. And so that pretty much had a Canon 24-70 to 70 living on it for the most part. What do you think about the Sigma art lenses compared to the Zeiss? I mean, which Zeiss? You, did you have the whole package? You had a whole package of Zeiss, right? I did. So these are all uh, stills lenses from the 70s and 80s and 90s. And yeah. I, I just love them because they have this real kind of organic look. Yeah. And uh, they're not too contrasty, but they're a little bit contrasty. The Sigma lenses were were really beautiful and really sharp, and and I it, I think they're fantastic. If uh, if if I were to choose between the two, I would probably go with the contact Zeiss just because I I kind of like their warmth. Mm -hmm. it, it just has a, a a nice organic feel to it. Mm -hmm. The Sigmas are a little bit a little more clinical, if that if that makes any sense. No, I agree. I, I've I've tried both. I mean, I'm I'm a kind of a Zeiss girl myself. I love the way those old lenses breathe differently yeah. than the new lenses. It's no wonder the film looks so beautiful. I, I've not been able to watch the whole thing, and I'm actually going to sit down this weekend and look at it from beginning to end because it's absolutely beautiful. No, thank you. So how are, how are you managing media? Okay, were you also, you're the editor, you're the DIT, you're the person that is figuring out what, much. What, was your, what was your workflow for the media? This was a real challenge because we were shooting every day with two reds, a Panasonic, and then, of course, all the audio wow. medium. And so in the field, you know, when the journey would stop for the day, our our second shift really began mm -hmm. because then we would use two different laptops to 
to start dumping media to different hard drives. Mm -hmm. And we would make sure that we had two copies of everything that had been shot that day before anything got written over. Mm -hmm. Once it came out of the field, it came to our edit facility here in Austin. And really one of the first things that we would do, we would copy that media onto our, uh, onto our, our LumaForge uh, jellyfish and then copy it off to LTO. So I have an LTO7 drive in my edit tower, and we would copy that stuff off to LTO drives twice, and then one copy would go to the director's house, to Ben's house, and then one would reside here at, uh, at, at my office. From there, you know, we felt like, okay, now we've got three copies of the media. We're in good shape. Mm-hmm. Then, it was, uh, then it was time to start ingesting. And I had cut my previous film, Audubon, in Premiere, uh, mm-hmm. The film prior to that, I'd cut in FCP7. I've cut in Avid. I've cut in FCP7, X, uh, you know, Premiere, Discrete Logic Edit. I, to me, if you know one nonlinear editor, you know them all. You just have to figure out where the buttons are for each of the different functions. Yeah, it's a slightly different. It's just like a different language. It's it a is. dialect. Yeah, exactly. You, you, you know, oh, what's this idiom? Oh, okay. So you say it like that. Oh, okay. So I export it like that. Yeah. So I'm curious about one thing and I don't want to interrupt you, but I am, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, what format were you shooting? I mean, because no, no. you've got all different kinds of cameras with, with different capabilities in terms of the format. What was your yep. uh, production basic format? Because the Helium's 8K... Yep. Well, we, we, knew, we knew we wanted to, li- to deliver in 4K and that our aspect ratio was going to be 239 to 1. We'd already decided that in the field. So okay. that when we were shooting, we were framing for 239 to 1. So we'd set up guides on all of the cameras so that anybody operating a camera would know that we were shooting in 2391. Mm-hmm. It really kind of depended on the situation. So like if we were shooting an interview, mm-hmm. we pretty much knew that we weren't going to use 8K for that because that was honestly kind of a waste of 8K. 6K, 6K is great. 5K is great. It allows you to punch in a little bit or you know, mm-hmm. vary up the angle if you need to. And we did that on occasion. So there are a couple of shots in the film and interviews where we'll do a punch in on an interview subject just to, to make a cut. So, you know, great. But for the most part, we were shooting 6K and 5K, certainly with my dragon. Mm-hmm. With, the, uh, with the weapon, we were probably shooting 8K only for some, some really nice scenic. Right. And then the rest of the time, it was 6K or 5K. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the Panasonic shoots in 4K, so that was, you know, no-brainer there. So how did you sync the cameras in terms of color? Was color balance a problem? Well, when you're shooting raw, you don't really have to worry so much about color balance. With the Panasonic, uh, that was much more of a concern. The, the ergonomics on that camera are, are a little bit funky. Yeah, that's why I'm... And, you know, there are little dip switches on the side for color balance on that. And you, we had a couple of shots where... Mm-hmm our camera operator didn't necessarily realize that he had flipped from, you know, 5,600 to 3,200 or, or what have you. And we'd be on the wrong color temperature for a scene or two or three. You know, that happens when you're shooting. Oh yeah. Well, when you're shooting this kind of stuff and you're, un- and you're tired and you're under pressure and you can in- inadvertently change those settings. That's why, that's why I was asking. Cause I, I'm sure mm-hmm. who, who did the coloring and you, did you use resolve for color? Oh, absolutely. We did. So, okay. uh, you know, it, that, that's part of that post-production workflow. So we started out with Premiere and uh, the, my assistant cameraman, Alex Winker, was also my assistant editor. And we were sitting there watching Premiere just take forever to ingest this stuff. I mean, forever. 
we were we were really starting to get worried there mm-hmm. as we were doing this because it was taking so long to ingest the footage mm-hmm. and Premiere would keep crashing and mm-hmm. we got desperate. Mm-hmm. And Alex is a is a very experienced and talented colorist. Uh, he's a young kid. He's probably two years out of the University of Texas, but he's uh, he's an excellent colorist. And he suggested, well, hey, take a look at Resolve. And, you know, Resolve had added editing features, uh, I guess, probably around uh, version 11 or so. And I had toyed around with it and played around with it, but had never really taken it for a spin as far as editing anything. Mm-hmm. And to take the jump into editing a feature with something was, you know, that that's a big deal. But we downloaded the version. I already happened to have a, a copy of the studio version. So we pulled it down and started ingesting footage. And we ingested within three hours what was taking weeks in premiere from there i kind of went well maybe we should really look at this and as we as i got more familiar with the tools i i was sold so um for our editing we were in resolve and then of course in coloring that made the handoff to our colorist robbie carmen so easy because we essentially online the film here in Austin before we ever handed it off to Robbie in Silver Spring. Oh, Robbie's awesome. So, I love Robbie. He's great. He's the best. Yeah, he's really good. He is, he is absolutely the best. <laughs> so awesome. I've known Robbie since probably about 2001 when he had just graduated from James uh, Madison University. Uh, he and I worked together in a production company and we've known each other forever. So he was a very natural choice when we knew that we were going to finish in 4K and we also wanted to finish in HDR because this is a picture that deserves HDR, and Robbie was an obvious choice for that. So when it came to uh, when it came to handing off in Resolve, it was actually it was actually really easy for him. I think I think he basically was able to copy over the footage from the the travel drive that we sent him onto his RAID, open up the projects, and really get to work pretty quickly. So how much footage did you have by the time you were done? Do you remember? Well, uh, I can't give you a firm number on exactly how many hours of footage we have. Um, We shot actively for six weeks with three cameras. And then uh, we we had a guy out in the field shooting uh, drone footage for about five weeks up and down the Rio Grande. (laughs) And um, we, we did other interviews and little pickup things. Uh, for probably another six months after that, you know, oh, we need to get a, we need to get more immigration information in. Okay, we need to go, you know, interview an immigration expert. All told, I think we probably have somewhere in the order of around 300 hours of footage. Yeah, that's a lot of footage. Yeah, yeah. The edit, the edit took about 11 months. Who wrote the script? Well, you know, in most documentaries, there's not necessarily a script. I know that's why I'm asking because so everybody works a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, I use Lumberjack Builder. And I actually create a script. I create a story. Oh, that's terrific. And then hand that over to the editor. But that's fairly new. You probably might not even have tried it. But No, no, unfortunately. But, I, but I've followed. Uh, who's the, who is the creator on, uh, on Lumberjack? Philip Hodgetts and Gregory Clark. Yeah, I've followed his work forever um, because he was one of the, one of the guys behind. Uh, he was a major contributor on Tupac. And so, you know, anytime. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for years. You know, anytime you'd see his name. You just go, oh well. Here, I'll get the straight dope from Phil. You know, he's gonna he's gonna be technically accurate and and also know the inside ins and outs of the program. Great, I, I, new info here. So I've I've heard about Lumberjack, but I haven't had a chance to use it. 
It's in part because I've been working in Resolve. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, but, but full disclosure, I'm a I'm a minor partner in that company, so I'm involved with Lumberjack. That's but I use it every day. I use it for these interviews even oh, because man, like if excellent. there's stuff I want to take out, I'll just I'll just you know take it out um, using Builder because Builder will sure. do the first radio Super cut. Cool. But anyway, back to the. The, the drawing board here. Let's talk for a minute about, gosh, I we don't have an, I want to talk to you all day. So <laughs> before we go off of the actual production, post-production, I also want to talk about the distri- distribution and marketing because a lot of people want to know about that as well, but we're still under the hood a little oh, bit. Sure. What was the most difficult part for you during production and in post-production? Well, it, it, production, you know, the, the physical grueling nature of the production was pretty tough. Getting your hands around all of the data was was pretty tough as well. And then once you had a handle on all of that, managing the actual, you know, looking at all the footage. And, we, you know, because it was a journey, we had a pretty good idea of what the narrative was going to be, at least when we started out. But it definitely evolved. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I hesitate to tell you what was the most difficult, but there were, there were demanding parts mm-hmm. all the way through the process. Uh, we edited for 11 months. And after about eight months, we submitted to Sundance and thought we were in a really good place as in terms of where the edit was. But, you know, we spent another three months and really improved the picture dramatically, I think. If you were to see the difference between the Sundance cut and then the, the cut that ultimately aired or, or showed at South by Southwest, it was significant. So all of those things sort of combined to to really, you, you end up with a product that you just kind of, or, or not even, I, I, don't, I hesitate to call it a product, but you end up with a story that you just can feel really good about and feel like, yeah, we told that story the way that it was meant to be told. You know, I'm so proud of all of you because I just admire your your perseverance and your energy and your creativity. Oh, thank you. It's an amazing work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it just was beloved at the South by Southwest Film Festival, and you're winning awards for it. Oh, oh, we had an we had an easy crowd. That was that was the hometown crowd. They were going to like us anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're just you're being modest. This stuff is not easy, and it takes a certain type of person to be able to commit to telling this kind of story where you literally have to go out and shoot for months at a time under difficult conditions. And it's also exhilarating. There's a, I don't know, when you... Oh, totally. Yeah, if you're the kind of adventurer that I think you are, it's exhilarating and that wanderlust is something that you're addicted to. Oh, I don't yeah. Know. Oh, my goodness. I, I it's, the sort uh, of thing, it's the sort of thing where you go, we're going we're gonna to stop a wall and, you know, you, you remember it for your entire life, your entire career. And it's something you can show your kids and they go, holy cow, that is awesome, Dad. Yeah. And for me, that's huge. Yeah. And and you did it beautifully. John, tell me, how did you market this film? You had this beautiful piece of work. It took you several months to get it finished. Now what? Mm-hmm. You know, marketing for a, for a documentary like this begins when you're in production. Mm-hmm. It actually begins when you're in pre-production. So you, you get the website, you start the Facebook page, you start the Instagram account, and you start posting to all of these things while you're in production, even while you're in pre-production, to start building that audience. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we did with River and the Wall. Mm-hmm. So along the way, we're posting behind-the-scenes production shots. We're posting, mm-hmm. we're posting everything that we possibly can to start to build that audience. So by the, I, I don't know the metrics on it. I don't know the numbers. But by the time we get ready to start marketing the film, we've probably already got you know four or 5,000 Facebook followers 
and probably another two or 3,000 Instagram followers. That's your base. That's where you start marketing the film. And so that's, that's re- where it really began. And, you know, Ben is uh, incredibly savvy. So he, uh, he has a, a very large Instagram account that probably has 85,000 followers or so. And so he was cross-pollinating pollinating there. And he'd also, along the way, written a book to accompany the river and the wall. And it was, it's literally the river and the wall, the book. And so that's a nice marketing piece that goes along there. You get the, the, the marketing help from Texas A&M press. And we really just started kicking it into higher gear. Once we knew that we had gotten into the South by Southwest film festival, because there's a deadline that really, that really crystallizes everything. It gives you a, a date to work back from in terms of finishing the film, but also a date to work from in terms of marketing the film. And Ben had an existing relationship with uh, Gravitas Distributing mm-hmm. to uh, Gravitas Ventures to distribute the film. They had distributed Unbranded and he'd been pleased with the work that they'd done there. And so uh, we met with them and, and heard their plan for the film and got, it got together with them. And the plan really was to try and get the film out as quickly as possible because Situation, the situation on the ground was changing every day. After we had completed production, things like child separation and detention had been going on, and we couldn't really address that in the film because it had happened ex post facto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we really wanted people to see the film as quickly as possible so that they could make informed decisions in 2020. And also so that they could see what we're talking about when we talk about building a wall on the border. So, um, you know, we, we wanted to release as quickly as we could after South by Southwest. And so it ultimately released on May 3rd. And, uh, and it was uh, in probably around 150 theaters or so across the nation, but then also released digitally the same day. So uh, you could see it in the theater, which is, which is definitely the best place to see it. But you could also see it on uh, iTunes or on Amazon uh, and Vimeo and Vudu and, you know, a wide variety of streaming platforms. And that was really our, our, our shot there. We, we really wanted to get it out there so that as many people as possible could see the film. And that was, that was our, our biggest motivator. Did Gravitas handle all of that for you? They did. So, uh, you know, we handled the technical side in terms of delivery, but then Gravitas took over uh, with their marketing team when we, uh, when we signed up with them. And, and obviously we did what we could, but Gravitas has a has a, mm-hmm. a larger and better uh, marketing team to uh, to put that into action, mm-hmm. and so they were they were they were terrific about it. That's awesome. What about the international audience? So international is actually still forthcoming. Uh, we uh, have just finished up the uh, the the Spanish subtitling for the film, and uh, I don't know that we necessarily have an international di- distributor yet, mm-hmm. but I know that we want that film to get out, especially to Mexico and Central America. Mm-hmm. For us, that is absolutely a goal, and we and we want that to happen as soon as possible, so that they can see what it is that we're talking about and what what many of us think about a wall. Let's go back to South by Southwest for just a minute. Sure. Is that where you first met Larry O'Connor, or did, had from OWC? Is I met you through Larry O'Connor, who owns OWC. So how did all of that happen? And I do believe you right. are going to become a very important part of the OWC family going forward. I want, uh, you know, as as so, and not because it's sponsored by them. I mean, it's sponsored by them because they know that I use their equipment all the time. It's really some of the most reliable, lightweight, sure. fast drives. The next time you get out in the field and you're worried about transferring media, I, oh, yeah. I hope you're using it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So how did you meet Larry? Larry. 
<laughs> yeah, actually, actually, I I'm going out to West Texas in about a week. I need to I need to call Larry up and see if I can get some get some of yeah. their SSDs to take out there and try them out. Uh, so I met Larry oh. uh, through our kids. Actually, uh, Larry and I actually it ended up we live in the same neighborhood. And his his son and my oldest son are 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 in the same grade and are good friends. So it it's one of those strange things that turned out like oh, OWC yeah I I use your gear since day one. <laughs> you know I'm I'm a guy who started out with Final Cut Pro from version one, and um, mm-hmm. myself and Jamie Pakel were the first guys hired to edit on Final Cut Pro at National Geographic in 2003. And back then you had to be your own video engineer because the video engineers didn't know really quite how to deal with Max or well, not that they didn't know how to deal with Max, but they didn't really know how to deal with Final Cut. So you had to, you had to really sprick the lingity with the video engineers to get a signal into a machine room or anything like that. And one of the things that we you know, relied on were products from OWC because, oh, you need to get an external burner. Oh, you need to get an SSD drive. And, and you know, Mac sales and OWC were, without a doubt, one of our mm-hmm. big resources from that day forward. And, and mm-hmm. they have been ever since. That's awesome. So, uh, you know, when I, when I met Larry, when I met Larry, it was like, you're the dude. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and we've, you know, and we've since funny. become really, really good friends. Our families are really tight. Um, and he's, he's just hilarious. He's, he's such a funny guy. Wonderful person. Wonderful family. He really is. And they do a lot for the creative community. I'm so grateful that they sponsor this radio show because it allows me to help other creatives talk about what they do and give them the love they deserve. (laughs) Oh, oh, heck yeah. Yeah. You know, it's terrific. So Absolutely I, terrific. I know I'm probably wearing you out, but before we go, can we just tell everybody quickly? I mean, I don't know how much time you have, but talk about <laughs> both the Unreal Dream. Well, talk about Unreal Dream and the Audubon Project and some of the other, you know, Al Reinert, who you worked with, passed away in 2018. Tell us a little bit about what, you know, the history of John Aldrich. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that's a that's a pretty boring story. <laughs> no, it's but, not. Uh, it is not. Enough, You're being um, modest. <laughs> I, I'd moved. I'd, I'd moved from uh, my 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 family and I had moved from Washington D.C. area uh, in 2010 back to Austin, where both my wife and I had gone to undergrad. I, I, I had a, a client, a photographer friend of mine, Dan Winters, and he and I had uh, had somehow found each other and edited together a couple of different shorts for some uh, for some magazines for GQ and and that sort of thing. And in fact, I'm going out uh, to West Texas next next week to do some more shooting with Dan. Um, and Dan's a real space nut. <laughs> he published a book of photographs about the last launches of the space shuttle, and reached out to this hero of his to uh, to write the foreword. And the guy's name was Al Reiner. And uh, Al had made a film called For All Mankind in the late '80s about the Apollo missions from. This footage that NASA had never really let out from the building, and Al was a one of the original writers for Texas Monthly, and was just sort of this legendary reporter figure in Texas. And after For All Mankind, he went on to go and be one of the writers on Apollo 13, one of the writers on uh, From the Earth to the Moon, 
and, uh, and, a, and a couple of other screenwriting jobs there in Hollywood. And in 2011, I guess, he was getting pretty tired of the, of the L.A. lifestyle. And uh, he, he signed on to direct a documentary called An Unreal Dream, the Michael Morton story. And, uh, and he asked Dan, hey, do you know any editors? And uh, Dan offered my name up, and I met with Al, and we became fast friends. And so I was hired on as an editor on Unreal Dream, and I ended up shooting a good piece of it and, and co-producing it. And then after that, um, so that film won the Audience Award at South by Southwest in 2013 and ended up being broadcast on both CNN and uh, Investigation Discovery, which, you know, yay, you can't ask for a, for a better outlet for that film. That's awesome. Wow. And then uh, and, and Al uh, hired me on to do the next film, so uh, a, a film called Audubon about the bird painter and conservationist John James Audubon, and I was lucky enough to produce and shoot and edit that one. And that ultimately ended up airing on PBS, which is the perfect home for a film like that. Yeah. And he and I were in the midst of production on uh, sort of a spiritual sequel to For All Mankind called Above It All. And that was to be a documentary about the International Space Station. And unfortunately, Al passed away on New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve Day 2018. And, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be difficult to go forward without him, I think. So uh, that project, that project is probably going to have to uh, going to have to shutter or, uh, mm. or at least wait for a while mm-hmm. while I figure out how I'm going to go forward with it. Mm. So sad to lose someone you care about like Absolutely. that. What's next for you, John? Do you know? Yeah. So next for us, Ben is already uh, at work on his next film, which he is calling Deep in the Heart of Texas, which would be sort of a planet Earth look at the various ecosystems of Texas. Um, Texas is wonderful in that you've got all these different biomes, probably seven or eight distinct different biomes uh, within the the borders of the state. And so we've already started putting out trail cams and investigating species and that sort of thing to to try and investigate that and to to show people really what, what, what is uh, within the confines here of the Lone Star State. I'm also at work on, a, uh, on developing a music series as well to uh, try and get out onto a platform sometime next year or the year after. Why music? In the 90s, when I had graduated from the University of Texas and was scrabbling around looking for jobs, one of the jobs that I got that was steady was with the Austin Music Network. And the Austin Music Network would film live performances, basically, usually at festivals, and put them on public access TV. It was a city-run channel, if you can believe it. And that was great. Great training for camera work, for live production, all of that. So when I was probably in year five or six at National Geographic, my boss there got uh, a series approved with the National Geographic Music Channel for a live music show. And somehow I convinced him that I was the right person for the job. And I ended up producing, shooting, and editing 60 episodes of a live music show in two years there at Geographic. (laughs) I love that little stage downstairs. Don't you love that little stage? I just one of my Uh, favorite performance spaces. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Down Uh there at Grubner? Uh Oh, it's the best. We, we We had so many acts come through there. And, and, and show there. And that was, I had the best job in the building. <laughs> I, you know, 
Yeah, great. You went to Egypt. Okay, great. You went to Indonesia. I had the best job in the building <laughs> because it was very low stakes. The music channel didn't have a lot of viewers, but everybody loved the content. And it was a very simple show to produce, but it was also uh, a window into the world of what it takes to be a touring artist. Mm -hmm. And that really struck me and mm -hmm. stayed with me. And so I want, I want to try and develop a series about what it's like to be a touring musician because musicians have really found themselves in a, in a very difficult position. They no longer make any money off of their recordings. That just doesn't mm -hmm. happen anymore. Only the 0.1% of musicians actually make any money off of record sales. So they've all got a tour. But the problem is if you go on tour, you're leaving behind that familiarity that allows you to be creative and you're, you're separated from family. You're separated from friends. You're out on the road and the road is really tough. It's, it's very monotonous. Places start to look the same and it's a really tough place to try and be creative. And so I want to try and present a show that gives people a window into that, a window into the creative process, but then also show these musicians on stage and really delivering because it's really interesting the 22 hours that they've got to go through to get to those two hours on stage, the two hours on stage are what make it worth it for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's going to be wonderful. I wish you good luck with that. You know, John, I, I'm so happy to talk to you. Thank you for taking time Thank in the you, middle of a busy day. I think everyone's going to really love what they're hearing. And you've been very, and it's it's awesome. It's very informative and very inspirational for others who, who want to do the same kind of work. Uh, Serena, it's been my pleasure. Yeah. So I've been speaking with John Aldrich, producer, editor, and definitely an adventurer and an incredible creative person. <laughs> this is Serena Catania with OWC Radio. And I will remind you guys of what I tell you every time. Get up off that chair and go do something wonderful today. Thanks for listening. 